if you have your Bibles, we're just going to jump into Mark chapter 6. Uh, we've been in Mark. How many of you have been able to keep up with the reading plan? Ooh, okay, cool, a couple. Way to go. Uh, it's never too late to start the reading plan. Uh, if you need one of these, they're out on the, on the table back there. Uh, grab one. It's, it's a way for us to read through the scriptures together. We'll all be reading the same thing. Uh, it's been really fun for, uh, uh, for me, uh, and I hope it can be fun for you. Uh, read, oh, in your Bibles, Mark 6, uh, we'll jump right in. It's in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind had come against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to, pa to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all, they all saw him and they were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. And the winds died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. When they've crossed over, they were in the land of Gennesaret, you know where that is, and, the, and, the, and they anchored there. As soon as they got out in the boat, the people recognized Jesus. Now, this passage in Mark 6 is a famous one. It's in the, uh, the storybook Bible, too. So if you have kids and you read the storybook Bible, you've probably read this one a few times. Uh, it stands out because it comes at the end of this weird, long passage, right? And if you look at the passage closely, Mark doesn't write in a chronological order. Instead, he groups a lot of stories together with the words immediately, or and then, and then, or next. So he's trying to get this motion. And so Mark is compressing a lot of things into these chapters. Now, he didn't write in chapters. He just kind of wrote, and we chaptered them out as time has gone on. But if you go back into Mark chapter 6, and we put ourselves in the time of Jesus, uh, and we put ourselves in, I guess, Jesus' sandals for the, for the moment, Mark chapter 6 is a rough chapter. Scroll back in it. If you have your Bible still open or the app still open, if you go back, you can just read the headlines of the chapter, and you can see that this was a time where it was probably pretty rough. Mark chapter 6 opens with Jesus going to his hometown to preach, which is pretty exciting, preaching in your home church, right? Not for Jesus. He was kicked out. And so he's been exiled. A prophet is not welcome in his own home, and so he shakes the dust off his sandals and then leaves. And then his cousin, his childhood friend, is beheaded by Herod. And so not only aren't you welcome in your town, your cousin, your friend, the one who introduced you to the rest of the world, has now been killed. So Jesus is having a rough time, and then there's a bunch of people following them, and they need food, and he's got to feed 5,000 people. How many of you like to feed five people? Okay, now he's feeding 5,000. <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, but now he's feeding 5,000, and that's just the men. There's probably close to 10,000 10, or more, and Jesus has to feed them. And so Jesus has been trying to get away. Uh, like the Southwest commercial, right? You want to get away? And Jesus is like, yes. And as you read through Mark 6, you can see over and over, he's trying to get away from these crowds. He's had a rough go at it. And finally, he does. He gets to this place where he can relax. 
Jesus, you could say, has had a stormy chapter 6 in Mark, and he wants to get a place where the winds are going to die down. And so what he does is kind of strange. If, if you look at the text again, the first thing he does is he says to his disciples, look, I need some time away. I want you to get in that boat and go across the lake. And he makes them get in the boat. The text said Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to be next to Jesus. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're going to take a nap because I need to take a nap. I said that to my children yesterday. You're all sleeping. We're all sleeping here. And so this is what Jesus says, I need a break. And what you see in Mark is about whenever Jesus is going to do something major, whether it's a sermon like what Jeff preached about last week or a miracle, he always takes time and withdraws. He goes by himself. It's a theme that you see over and over in the book of Mark. This time, Jesus sends his disciples away and he goes to the mountain and he prays. And this is strange Okay, because what happens next kind of raises, I hope, a lot of questions. It raised a lot of red flags for me when I was reading this. Jesus then, when his disciples go, uh, begins to move in three unexpected ways in relation towards his disciples. He sends them away, and then he sees them from afar, and then he saves them. So if you're taking notes, that's three S's. If you're a Sesame Street fan, this is sponsored by the letter S. And so Mark 6, 45, immediately Jesus said to his disciples, get out and go to this. And remember this, if you want to circle it in your Bible or highlight it on your app, go to Bethsaida. Go there. Just go. Shove off. Get out of here. And then after they left, he went up on the mountainside to pray. So the first S, sends. It's strange. Do you think about it? Let's get this straight. Whose idea was it to send the disciples? You can answer. Jesus sent them. The whole journey was whose idea? Jesus. Did Jesus know exactly what he was sending them into? Okay. The text says he made them get into the boat. He sent the crowd away and then sent his disciples away. Now, did Jesus then know what was going to come on that lake? He's God. There's the hint. The answer is yes. So Jesus intentionally sent them onto a lake where they would then be hit by a storm. Now, this shouldn't have taken Jesus by surprise, even though he is God and he would know this anyways. The Sea of Galilee sits geographically right in the crosshairs of hot desert winds coming from the east and cool Mediterranean winds coming from the west. Yeah, I'm getting my directions right. And when they meet, it's usually down the mountains there uh, in Gaza and on the lake, and it's a small lake. So think of your swimming pool. When everyone starts to jump in, all the waves just kind of bounce off of each other. And all of a sudden, this small lake has a ferocious waves. And sometimes it would take days for the waves to slow down. Jesus knew this, and he sends them into the storm. He's like, okay, guys, get out of here go that way. Now, Jesus knew what he was sending them into. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. He knew a storm would meet them in the middle, and he knows what he's doing. So why does Jesus send his disciples into a storm? Does it seem like a nice thing to do? No. When you look at something, would you intentionally send your friend in your car that you know is going to break down on I-5? I don't know what kind of friend you are, 
But if you're a good one, the answer's no. Would you intentionally put someone you love and someone who's followed you in a place where they could be killed? No. But Jesus sends his disciples into a storm. It's not like they were being punished. Uh, they didn't do anything wrong. They were doing their job. In fact, they just got back from their own little missions trip. I think Glenn led that one too. They just got back and, uh, and, and, and things went well. They were reporting that, that many people came saved. They did miracles and, 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 and it was wonderful. So they, did, they were doing good. They were helpful. They were obedient. They were effective leaders. So why does Jesus send them into a storm? Doesn't peace always follow obedience? Doesn't reward always come after efficacy? Isn't this like a time like, Jesus, why? Jesus told them to get in a boat, get in the boat, and they said nothing, they just obeyed again. So they're obeying and still being sent into something that was difficult. Jesus was putting them in a place that wasn't safe. He was putting them into a place that was risky. It seems opposite to what we do in our culture, right? We're obsessed with safety. Everything has to be safe. Everything has to be comfortable. Everything has to be easy or else we wouldn't do it. That's the way our culture is. But Jesus says to his disciples, get in this rowboat and row across the lake. It's going to be dangerous. Why? You see, the disciples were having a hard time. They've been following Jesus for a little while now, and they hadn't really figured out who Jesus was. Sure, he was this magic man that did all these miracles. He fed 5,000 people great. He raised someone from the dead. That was awesome. He talks weirdly about seeds. Uh, he's really into farming. Uh, and, and, and so they're following him, but they really hadn't put this connection together on who Jesus was. And if you're Jesus, it's getting kind of frustrating. Here they have seen everything with their own hands, and yet they're not trusting him. They know that he's God. They think that he's Messiah, but they're having a hard time. Mark structures his book in such a way that the first eight chapters answer the question of who, is, who do you think Jesus is? And the second half says, this is who Jesus is. So who do you think I am? This is who I am. And so Mark is ramping up and he's talking about these disciples as still trying to figure out what Jesus is, who Jesus is. And Jesus has shown them, but their hardened hearts haven't really caught on yet. They've seen Jesus move, but they still don't trust him to move. This shows itself if you back up in the story. Uh, Jesus has the 5,000 people that are hungry and wanting some food, and his disciples come in panic saying, Jesus, what are we going to do? There's no In-N-Out nearby. How are we going to feed these people? I had In-N-Out twice last weekend, so just, it's on my brain. I know, right? So good. Okay, so, uh, uh, so good to have it twice. And then, uh, but there's nothing around. There's no supermarkets. And if we were to go back to town, which is a day's journey, to get more food, it would cost us like three months' wages to feed all of these people. And Jesus' response was kind of weird. You feed them. You've already gone through all of these things. You've already seen how I moved in your missions trip. You've seen how I provided. You know that I've given you the power. You feed them. And the disciples kind of bristle at this, going, I don't, I don't know if we can do it. And then Jesus says, fine, let's, I'll do it. I'll do it. So the disciples don't get that the same power that Jesus has is the same power that they have. And so they're struggling a little bit. 
And so Jesus sends them into a hard place. He sends them into a dangerous place. Why? So that he can stretch them. So that he can say, I'm going to build your faith a little bit. I'm going to put you in an uncomfortable position so that your faith will be moved, so that you will learn that I am with you, that I'm the one who's going to provide for you. I've provided food. I've provided shelter. I've provided you a way to do your mission trip without it taking anything but the clothes on your back. And I'm going to provide for you safety when the world seems to be coming at you. In our world, we're obsessed with safety. We're obsessed with things being easy. We don't like to do difficult things because it's difficult. But oftentimes the call that Jesus puts on our hearts is get in a boat and go across the lake. It's going to be hard and that's okay. I'm going to put you in a hard situation. And here's the big idea. When we follow Jesus, nothing is ever intended to be safe. It's not safe to follow what Jesus is. Culture will tell you the opposite. And we've allowed our culture to shape our faith more than we've allowed the story of Scripture to shape our faith. And now we've watered down the idea of what it means to be a Jesus. We like it safe, but nothing is safe in Scripture. Look back with it. Look back with me. Was it safe for David, the guy who has no military experience, to fight a giant with a rock? No. Doesn't seem wise. In fact, everyone tried to talk him out of it. Is it safe then for Moses to be a a shepherd in the middle of the Horeb desert and then say, yeah, I'll lead the people out of Egypt? Is that safe? No, it's safer for him to stay where he was. It was safer for him to stay in his comfort zone. Was it safe uh, for Moses to step out and defend somebody who was killed? No, it would have been wise for him just to turn the other way, but he didn't. Was it safe for uh, Abraham to leave his family and start on a new journey with God, a God he didn't know? No. But every move that God says, it says, if you want to follow me, it's going to be risky. And watch what happens in the middle of the risk. I'll meet you in that place. God doesn't call us to be safe. He never has. He never will. God calls us to take a step of faith, and a step of faith is risky. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, uh, shockingly, comes from the Exodus journey, but this one's in in Joshua 14, and it's the story of Caleb. Uh, I named my son Caleb after Caleb, right? So Caleb was one of the two spies that spied on Canaan, where ten were bad and two were good. We know that song? Do we know the hand motions? Okay. Uh, He was one of the two. Joshua was the other one. Caleb was the other one. And, And Caleb comes back and says, yes, there are giants in that land. He and Joshua are agreeing. There are giants in the land. It's going to be difficult. But you know what? God's made us a promise and it's going to be risky. We got to go. Caleb's name means whole heart. And so he was leading from his heart. He's saying, we have to take this. The The 10 bad spies got up there and said, no, 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 no. It's too risky. There are tall people there. There are, uh, there are people with armies, and we're short, and we don't have armies. And yet Caleb and Joshua says, yeah, but God's for us. It's risky. Let's do it. 
And then uh, the 10 people outweighed the two people and they decided that they weren't going to go. And what happened then was 40 years of wandering in the desert. Now there's a reason for it. We'll get to that later. Uh, but what happens at the end of the time as they walk in to uh, the promised land 40 years later is Joshua and Caleb are still around and the other 10 spies are not. And Caleb comes to Joshua in Joshua 14. And I'll just tell you about it. Joshua and he says, look, God promised me this land. Don't give me the easy stuff. I want the high country. I want to take on the giants. Why? God promised me with this land. And I'm going to step out in faith and take a risk and actually take the hard stuff. That's where I want to be. Caleb knows that we aren't meant to live safely in this life when we follow God. There's going to be a risk involved. Jesus sends his, his disciples into a storm, into the risky place, so that their faith can be transformed. The next thing that happens that we see Jesus do is he sends them and then he sees them. In verse 48, he saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. Can we all just say, holy cow, he's walking on water? Uh, that's awesome. Okay, there's other stuff happening here. Okay, he's, he's watching them. Walking on water is great. That's the miracle here. But what's going on around the miracle that makes that miracle so special? Let's find out. The wind was against them, and Jesus is standing on the shore all by himself watching them. In John's account, uh, John tells the same story, and he says uh, that, the, that he saw them and that he had not yet gone to them. And so he's watching his people have a hard time. It's a chilling phrase if you think about it. Jesus had not yet come to them. They were caught in the storm. They did exactly what Jesus said. And look what it got them. A night on a storm-tossed sea with their master somewhere offshore watching them. My dad used to have this phrase, and it haunts me still today, and I can, I can hear him say it. Uh, he owned a construction company, and I was one of his workers. I was not very good at it, but I was one of them because I was related. I couldn't get fired, and, although he did fire me once. But, uh, and then I was rehired that night at dinner because Mom made him. Uh, but when I first started... Uh, he would show me how to build things. So he would say, this is how you frame a wall. This is how you run the lines. This is how you put drywall in. This is how you do tile. And I was learning all of it. But the longer I worked for him, the less and less he would hold my hand through all of these things. Uh, to the point where I, we would eventually show up to the job at the same time together. And he would go, do this, 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 this. I'll be back at lunch and it should be done. No, it would never was. But I would get stuck because I'm not, again, not very good at it. And I would call him, and, and, uh, and he would say this phrase, Brad, if you were in the middle of the desert without your cell phone right now, what would you do? And it was meaning, it was his nice way of saying, figure it out. You're, this is going to be hard for you, but, but figure, figure it out. One time we were building a, a, a hangar in Mozambique, and the steel we ordered was the wrong fitting steel, and I was having a hard time with it. I didn't know it was the wrong fitting steel until we we're both getting there. And so I'm trying to make it work, and finally I go, Dad, what's with this? It's not working. And he goes, Brad, if you were in the middle of the desert, what would you do? And I said, Dad, I'm in the middle of Mozambique, and I'm asking you. 
But what dad was showing me and what haunts me still to this day, and sometimes I still say that if I was in the middle of the desert, is sometimes God gives us, puts us in these hard situations, and then he watches us struggle. Not because he's mean, not because he's this um, all-powerful deity that likes to watch us squirm. It doesn't make him a bad God. It didn't make my dad a bad father, not one bit. What God knew, what Jesus knew about the disciples and what my dad knew about me is that the struggle that we are going through today would build endurance for tomorrow. How do I get through a tough time when, I'm, when, when I don't understand how to, how to work? I don't know how things are working. Do I quit? No. Figure it out. Jesus knew what the disciples were going to have to face. He knew that what was going to come for them he knew that they, most of them would be hunted down and killed. It was going to get hard. And so he sends them into the lake to say, hey, it's going to get windy. It's going to get difficult. Uh, and during this storm, your faith is going to be stretched. But watch what happens in the middle of your storm. God shows up. Through the night, Jesus saw them. Through the storm, he saw them. And like a loving father, he didn't abandon them. He watched them and he waited for the right time and the right moment. What made it the right time? I don't know. Why was the ninth hour better than the fourth hour? I couldn't tell you. Why does God wait for us until the money's gone? I don't know. Why does God wait for the sickness to linger? I have no idea. Why does he choose to wait until the other side of the grave for healing? I don't know, and we never will. And you'll exhaust yourself trying to figure it out. But one thing we do know is that though we might think God's timing is late, his timing is right on time. And in the right time, Jesus decided he was going to go to them. Luke 18 says that God will always give us what is right to his people who cry out to him day and night, and he will not be slow to answer them. Now, it's his version of slow versus our version of slow, which is a whole other sermon series about waiting. But what we see is that God is always on the move. Even though you hear nothing, God is speaking. Even though you see nothing, God is acting. With God, there are no accidents. Every incident is packed with intention to bring us closer to him. Even the times when you're being stretched, even the times when the winds are faced against you. Here's another example from the, one of the, my favorite parts, Exodus. Did you know that the route from Egypt to Israel would only take 11 days by foot? 11 days. So why did God make them go 40 years? Now, I travel, I drove for two days last week. That was awful. 40 years wandering the desert. Why did it take that long? Well, here's what uh, Deuteronomy 8 says. Remember how the Lord your God led you in the desert for these 40 years taking away your pride and testing you because he wanted to he wanted to know what was in your heart he took away your pride when he let you go hungry and then he fed you with manna which neither you or your ancestors had ever seen this was to teach you that a person does not live by eating only bread but by everything the lord says during these 40 years your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell know in your heart that the Lord, your God, corrects you as a parent corrects the child. Did you see this? Did God want the children of Israel to reach the promised land? Of course he did. That was the whole point of leaving Egypt. 
but he put them in a troubling situation to prove to them what? That God would provide. In the 40 years, they learned who God was. They learned how God provided. And so Jesus is sitting on the shore watching his disciples struggle to get to the other side. And Jesus is way more concerned that they arrive to the other side prepared than, than, than that they arrive to the other side promptly. And so he's watching them struggle. They're preparing for their future. Was Jesus just sitting there watching and being entertained? No. What was Jesus doing? Go back to the first verse. What was he doing for them? He was praying. He was praying for them. When the disciples began to struggle, he heard their cries and he began to pray. Now, why? There's two options, I think it's clear. Either he didn't care and he's offering the, the traditional thoughts and prayers, or he actually believed what prayer did. And Jesus hasn't changed. You and I find ourselves in storms. We find ourselves in risky situations. We're faced with decisions every day that are risky. And yet Jesus still prays for us. Hebrews 7.25 says that he lives to pray for us. And in this case, in the Luke passage, he's praying a prayer that he himself will answer. So where does that leave us? Jesus sees them, or he sends them, and he sees them. And while Jesus is praying, they're in a storm, and so are we. And we do what exactly the disciples did. They row. The disciples rowed all night. Uh, the text says that they were straining. In other places, that word for straining means tormented. It wasn't easy. It wasn't glamorous. It was hard. It was a gale-force wind. And you know what? Much of our life is not easy. Uh, our, our lives are spent rowing, rowing against the wind, getting out of bed, fixing lunches, turning in assignments, changing diapers, paying bills. Everything about our life is routine and regular. And if you're honest, sometimes it's more struggle than it is relief. It's more wrestling than it is resting. Perhaps you feel this way too. You feel discouraged, and it seems like you're rowing into these gale-force winds. You're asking yourself, why on earth was I put here in the first place? Remember this. Even though you can't see Jesus, he sees you. And like C.S. Lewis wrote in the Narnia book about Aslan the lion who was the Christ figure, he says he appears without warning and exactly when he is needed. Aslan was among them and no one had seen him coming. And so he sends them into the storm. He sees them there. And when they need him most, he's on his way and then he saves them. Here's, let's continue in verse 48. He was about to pass by them, which is strange. He's prayed for them, and he's about to pass by. Carrie was asking me somewhere over Utah what, what this week was going to be uh, teaching on. We drove from Arizona to here last week, and I said, there's this phrase in Luke that says Jesus was about to pass by them, and it scares the snot out of me. Here they are struggling. He's been praying for them. Jesus decides he's going to put on his water shoes, and he's going to walk across the lake, and he doesn't even stop. He was going to pass by them. In verse 49, now they got his attention. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, as you would. They cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. That makes sense. Immediately he spoke to them, take courage. It is I, be not afraid, which probably didn't cause a lot of peace. Then he climbed into the boat and said to them, with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. 
for they had not understood about the loaves, because why? Their hearts were hardened. That phrase, passed by them, is scary, but that phrase, passed by them, isn't only used here. That phrase, to pass them by, is a phrase that's used a lot in Scripture. Two main ones where you see it, and then Moses, he's had it with the people of Israel. They've done some pretty knucklehead things, and he's had it. He's been trying to lead them, and he says to God, these people of yours, and whenever you call people you're leading those people of yours, uh, it's like what I say to my wife, your children, I want nothing to do with them at the moment. And she'll say, my children, when your boys did this. Uh, this is what Moses is doing. He's paddling into the storm, and he says, your people. And Moses says, I need to see you to make sure that you're real. And God says, cool, I'm going to pass by you. And, and then God passes by and Moses sees God's goodness and his glory. Later in Second Kings, or First Kings, it pops up with Elijah on the mountain. He had just had a standoff with the, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then he feels like he's all alone in the nation, uh, the only, only one of God's prophets. It's him versus the world. And he runs to Sinai, the very same place where Moses was passed by. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then they have a discussion, and then God says, I'm going to pass you by. And that's where we get God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the wind, but he was in the small voice. God passed them by. And so here you have the disciples in the middle of the storm, the world blowing against them. They think they're going to die. And what does God do in the form of Jesus? Passes them by. It's not that he's going to walk on by them, but... He's going to show them the goodness and the grace and the peace that only he can offer. He's going to meet them in their place of struggle to do the same thing he did with Moses and Elijah and David. He's going to pass them by to let them know that even those are surrounded by these insurmountable obstacles, his presence is still there. And notice, he didn't just pass by as a temporary measure to make them feel better, as like a little balm. He actually gets into the boat with them. I like to imagine that the water rose up and he just kind of gently stepped into the boat. Or he climbed in there like, like we all climb into boats, and it was a little bit embarrassing. We don't know. Uh, but there's a little picture there that I wish Mark would have described a little bit better. But somehow, instead of just passing by them, giving them a momentary glimpse of his goodness like he did with Elijah and Moses, he actually comes and sits down with them. He gets in the boat. He sees them. And then he moves to save them. His presence wasn't passing. It was permanent. Jesus got into the boat with them, and then the storms calmed, and then they kept rowing. God didn't remove them. From the boat. Oftentimes, when we're going through a storm of our own, what do we say? God, take me out of the storm. Uh, we pray like David and Elijah do, right? Destroy my enemies and make me have peace. That's not usually what happens. Sometimes he'll come to you and say, I'm not going to remove you from this because you're learning a lot here. What I am going to do is I'm going to sit with you in the middle of it. And did you see the disciples' response? They were more frightened by his presence than they were his absence. He came with the full power of God, the one who controls the wind and the sea. And even though he tries to reassure them, they're a little bit more confused. And sometimes you and I can be a lot like the disciples. Christ may pass by us and we fail to see it. 
It's only when we get to the other side of the lake, on the other side of the storm, do we look back and go, oh, there he was. He was with us this entire time. And watch what happens. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Now, where did they head off to? Back in the very beginning, where were they going to? Bethsaida. Where did they end? Gennesaret. Oftentimes, the storm in our lives will take us to a place we never, ever expected. And what will end up happening is we'll meet Jesus in, place in, in, in ways and in places we never expected either. We might think we're going to Bethsaida, but God takes us to Gennesaret. And the whole time, we have no idea. But we're trusting. Did they need to go to Bethsaida? No. They're supposed to go to Gennesaret. And then as soon as they got off the boat, what happened? People recognized who Jesus was, and the ministry happened again. Today, you might find yourself in a storm. You might find yourself struggling to make the ends meet. You might find yourself dreading waking up tomorrow because today's going to be enough. You might find, your, you might find the wind in your face zapping your, industry, your, your, your energy and robbing your faith. You might feel that, if you're, that you're all alone in the deepest, scariest part of this lake of yours. And you're wondering if you're going to drown. Congratulations. You're being stretched. You're being shaped. Your faith is growing. And this is not a time for you to pray for an exit, but to pray that God would show himself to you all the more. That then, when after the storm passes, and it will pass, You'll get to the other side and realize, I was never alone in the midst of this. And at the right time, God came. And in the right way, he appeared. The challenge for us is, we, is, is to bail out. Don't. Don't quit. Don't lay down the oars. Keep paddling. Keep pushing. God is too wise to forget you, too loving to hurt you. When you can't see him, we can trust him. He's praying the prayer that he himself will answer. And instead of looking at the waves, trying to see what's going to hit us next, try looking at the horizon and see that Jesus is making his way to you. And you might find that you yourself are being transformed into something you never saw coming. You're being prepared for what's next. It's hard. It's absolutely difficult, right? Because we don't want it, but it's exactly where we need to be. And the comfort that you and I have in the middle of all of this is that the presence of God is with you in those places. And so we look not with eyes of doom trying to figure out what's going to kill us, but with eyes of expectancy, wondering how God is going to move in this. And in doing so, we move to a place of reliance on Jesus' power. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you meet us in this storm, that you meet us when the waves are hard against us, when the wind is blowing, uh, when it doesn't make sense, when our greatest fears are about to swallow us up. You see us. Not only did you see us, you probably sent us. And you're wanting to develop our faith. You're wanting to stretch us. You're wanting us uh, to become more and more like you. You didn't send the storm, but you'll use the storm. You didn't send the pain, but you'll use the pain and you'll redeem the pain. 
God, may we learn to trust you in the middle of that. May we learn to keep our eyes peeled uh, for you walking on top of our fears, dominating them, bringing them peace, bringing the perspective. May we move to this place of trust. And Lord, there's most likely some people here uh, in person or online that feel like they've been rowing for years. And it's just getting more and more difficult. Lord, would you bring them endurance? Would you bring them uh, a reason to keep rowing? Lord, may you bring around them people to pick up an oar with them and to row alongside. People to come alongside of them and point out the places where Jesus is and Jesus is moving take their eyes away from the storm just for one minute to see how you're in the boat with them. Lord, would you give them strength? Would you give them endurance? Would you give them stronger oars and a community to help? Lord, we thank you for the ways that you meet us in the difficult places. And it's your name we pray.